this is a Studio Scotch podcast presented by Scotch College, Western Australia. Hi, this is Sam Sterrett. And I'm Steve McLean. And this is The Range Project. Mark Williams, welcome to The Range Project. I'm going to launch straight into it and ask you, why are smartphones making us dumber? <laughs> That's the one everyone asks for, which is awesome. Um, to be honest, I don't think that smartphones are making us dumber any more than alcohol makes us an alcoholic or gambling makes us a gambling addict or a drug makes us a drug addict. It's the way we use the phones and it's the way the phones are set up that are actually capturing our attention and making us dumber. So the way the tech companies have set them up, it's to actually capture our attention and hold our attention on the phones. And so because of that and because we don't change those settings, usually people are becoming really addicted to these mobile phones. Uh, same with devices. So same with you know your laptops or your, your iPads. They're designed so that you will spend as much time on them as you possibly can and more time than you should be doing. And therefore, you're not spending enough time in the real world. Um, and that's because they want your time. They want your attention so they can sell advertising, so they can make money. Because the way the whole industry is set up, they're, they're selling advertising. And to sell advertising, they've got to have eyes on screens. And so therefore, they set them up so that we spend way too much time with our eyes on those screens. And we now know it's, it is causing depression. The, the earlier a child is given a, a mobile phone or a mobile device, more likely they are to have ADHD. The more time a child spends on a device, the more likely they are to have ADHD. Learning on a device is poorer than learning in real life. Learning doesn't transfer as well from a device to real life as it does from real life to a device. Um, we know that if you just simply, I'll give you one one example of many, I, I could spend two hours talking about this, but one of them is um, using a, a Wayfinder app. So you Google Maps and so on. That Those apps, when you use those apps, um, normally what would happen in our brains is we have an area, it's called the parahippocampal place area, which tells us where we are in space and how to get from one place to another. Attached to that is the hippocampus, which has our episodic memory, which is everything we did when we got there and what we did when, once we were there and all the events and everything that happens in our lives. Now, if you use a Wayfinder app, it doesn't activate and it doesn't lay down any memories by how you actually got to that place. So you don't have those memories in your parahippocampal place area. So what you do there hasn't got anything to attach itself to. And so you remember less about what you actually did there. Our parahippocampal place area is now getting smaller in, in the average individual because we're using those Wayfinder apps. And our hippocampus is also getting smaller and we remember less about what we did during the day. They've done some beautiful studies with college students, which is relevant for you guys as teachers, where they give the college students in the US either a paper map or they give them a Wayfinder app on their mobile phone to get around the college. And they find after six months, the students, not surprisingly, don't know their way around the college as well. But they also are getting poorer grades. They have less friends. They have less connection to the university and they're more depressed because they're using the Wayfinder app. So, I mean, that's just one of the many examples, but, um, and I can give you dozens of others. But the problem is we're not using our brains and therefore we're, using, we're losing those abilities. And that's a real shame. 
Um, and so we need to turn them off and we need to turn the notifications off and all those sorts of things so that we are actually using our brains, so that we're exercising our brains so that we can live longer. You know, things like our IQ is actually dropping. For the first time in history, our IQ is going down. And used every every five years, they used to have to adjust the IQ test because everyone was getting a little bit smarter and the average has to be 100 because 100 is, is, is the average. Um, the last time they did that, three, four years ago, our IQ had actually dropped rather than got higher and they had to, you know, ramp those down rather than up. And that's really quite scary. We're also getting Alzheimer's disease much earlier these days than we ever have in the past. Again, because we're not using our brains in the same way. And so therefore those areas of our brains are actually atrophying and we're ending up with um, neurological diseases. So, you know, there's a whole ramp. I can keep going, but I won't. I'll let you move on. It sounds like but there's there a few issues there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are a lot of issues. It's so, so a nice overview. <laughs> so, Mark, is it a myth then, um, to play devil's advocate, is it a myth then that, you know, the, the argument that where people would say, well, we're just using this technology, we're outsourcing our memory to do all these tasks that, you know, we would otherwise be chewing up all of our, you know, memory or expending all our energy trying to remember these tasks when the technology can do it and therefore freeing up our, our, our I guess, our mind for other things, you know, to be a, perhaps more creative. Is that a total – because I've heard that argument um, made. What do you think of that? Yeah, so there's, there's three big problems with that argument. Um, the first one is we know that our brains are plastic. The neuroplasticity was shown about what, 15, 20 years ago, our brains are plastic throughout our lives. So you need to actually use it. It's the same as any other muscle. And if you don't use it, then it atrophies. That's like arguing that if you don't do exercise, then you'll be better at sport. Yeah, it's, it's nonsense, right? It makes no sense at all. We've got to actually exercise our brain to make it stronger so that we can actually use it better. Um, so that that's the number one problem. Number two is we actually have access to less information now because we're on the internet. There's a lot of studies now showing that each individual has access to less information because we're on the internet, because the algorithms that run in the background of Google, Facebook, and all of the, the apps that we use to actually search the internet, those algorithms limit the amount of information we have and drive us in certain directions, which they believe, based on our prior search history, we're actually gonna be interested in. So it's dividing us more and it's giving, giving us access to less information than we used to have. So a student today has access to less information if they use a computer to search something than if they go to a library and actually look it up where they'll actually be able to find the information they're actually looking for rather than what they're being driven to look for. Um, and, and the third one is, the first, <laughs> the third, um, sorry. I've lost my train of thought then. But, yeah, those are the two main ones. We'll stick with those two. We, in your big summary at the start there, there's probably a lot we want to unpack as well. Mm. There's something mm. you said at the start um, in comparison to alcohol and blaming alcohol for being an alcoholic. But I guess the difference there is with that analogy, if you've got uh, alcohol is for adults and uh, social media and phones, technology is available to children and I think you, you probably tell us better than what I can, but the the child's brain is far more open to plasticity than adults. So how does it compare? And I know there's um, some adult onset ADHD as well as a result of smartphone usage, which is being considered at the moment. Um, so how does it compare uh, giving this technology to children and how addicted they potentially get versus adults? Yeah, there's a lot more potential for damage with it, with a child because they haven't yet developed these abilities. 
your prefrontal cortex doesn't actually fully develop until you're 25, plus or minus two years. So th these kids that are, that are getting these devices before the age of 25, of course, your prefrontal cortex is involved in your ability to attend to, 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 to the world, control your attention, um, to, to uh, regulate your responses, to, to stop yourself from doing things that you shouldn't be doing, to control those sorts of things in your executive function, so your decisions and your good and bad decisions. All of those things need to be developed, but we know that the smartphones and uh, laptops and all these things are actually negative effect, negatively affecting the development of those areas. The other really scary thing is that it's now been shown, it's been replicated multiple times now, that it's students or, or kids that learn how to read on a device, on a screen, rather than on paper, don't have the same um, white matter tracks as those that learn on paper. So if you learn on a screen, you have a significant deficit in your white matter tracks. Now, the white matter tracks in your brain are basically the corpus callosum that connects the left and right hemisphere, and then all the areas that connect the other areas up and down from the anterior to posterior areas of your brain. So they're crucial for being able to think and the development of your brain. And there's a huge NIH study now going on in the US. They're spending millions of dollars to look at why that is happening when you're on a device compared to on paper and the impact of that. Um, but that's really scary. I mean, that's actual brain damage. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, uh, I think it might have been the same study, but uh, what they were saying also, is the bigger the screen, the better, and then paper and books are, are better again. Is that the same same thing? That's, yeah, that's that's what they're looking at is, you know, what, is it just because they're so small or is it, you know? Yeah, and the distraction level as well, which is a whole other topic that we will no, no doubt get into. Yes. But that, that, is, that is still a bit of a mystery, isn't it, that why, just why looking at a screen in a sort of pixelated screen, why that would not, why that would not work as well just looking at a piece of paper in terms of your sensory perception. Um, is, is there any hints on, on why those two formats, um, besides the, the fact that, you know, you might be a bit distracted when looking at a screen and various things popping up. And, but if you're just to read a novel, let's say, on a, on a screen versus a hard copy paperback. Yeah, so that's been studied quite a lot now. Um, there's, there's four main reasons. One is that we know, we've known for a long time that when you read something on a, in, in, in a book or in a textbook or whatever, um, you actually remember the content what you're actually reading, not just based on the words, but where it is on the page. So if it's on the left-hand side or the bottom or whatever. And that's why textbooks and everything have lots of figures and things because you link or you anchor what you're learning to all of those extra that extra information that's in on each page and when you actually turn the pages and so on those links and anchors all help you remember whereas when you're reading on a screen it all just slides up and down so you don't have any of that extra information to actually link with so it's not so your brain's um, not trying to make all those extra connections to connect both the sense sensory with the visual um, with the, the links with the the um, pictures with the words and all of that stuff together. So there's not as much um, interaction, not as much um, activity across the brain when, when you're actually reading on a screen compared to when you're reading on paper because of all those links and anchors. There's also an issue with the perception of it. So we, we know that when we read on a screen, there's the assumption that you'll have access to it later. So therefore, we usually skim. So there's been lots of eye-tracking studies with everyone from six-year-olds all the way through to 70-year-olds. Um, and we actually just read the first couple of lines and then we usually jump to the bottom and read the bottom lines and we don't actually 
read in depth when we read on a screen, even when we're reading on uh, things like Kindle and so on. Um, whereas when you're reading on paper, you know you may not have access to it later. So you actually read each line and you actually concentrate more on it. There's also the problem that you can't flick backwards and forwards easily. So they've done lots of studies where they've given students, again... Well, you don't know where you are in space either, right? So you, you remember yeah. a bit you were looking at on the page previously. You can't go back to that. You can't flick back easily. Yeah, so you can't flick back easily from one to the other. Um, and so that's another real problem. And then the, the fourth one is we actually don't transfer the information as well. So the stuff that we learn in real life, so they did this originally with just toddlers, and they gave them either a block task in real life or they gave them the same block task but on an iPad, showed them how to do the block task. When you give a child a block task in real life and then ask them to do it in real life, they're very good at it. If you give it to them on a screen and then ask them to do it on the screen, they're very good at it. But if you give them to them on real life and then ask them to do it on the screen, again, they're very good at it. But if you give it to them on the screen and then ask them to do it in real life, they're very poor at it. They actually lose the ability to transfer information, or we all do, from on a screen to real life. And again, it's something that they're looking at, but they've done lots of control yeah. experiments. I'm quite interested in that because I teach STEM uh, and something I have noticed is, is they'll design things on an iPad or they might do it on a computer screen. But then when it comes to real life, they hadn't even considered dimensions in any respect whatsoever. And I mean, that's there's they just thought that it was going to fit without even considering dimensions. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's a big problem. I have a very good friend who's an architect and... Um, he said a lot of his the, the, the new graduates that he gets in, um, there's a big problem when they then go to actually build a building or whatever because um, things don't fit um, yeah, and things don't work in the real life the way right. they do on the screen, which is you know interesting, whereas they used to build the little models in real life rather than doing them all on. Devices. That's what I'm actually doing with some of my students at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and they love it. They, I mean, that's, that's really cool, right? Yeah. That's, yeah, you get all the visceral parts of it. You get to learn. New Unfortunately, it's a little bit novel for a lot of kids, though, because they, they, you know, they've grown up in this world where where they have had far less exposure to these kind of real life applications than what we would have growing up. Yeah, but it's not this world, right? It's it's a fake world that's been designed by people like Mark Zuckerberg to make money, but it's not the real world, and that's the problem: is that we keep thinking about it as this world, and it's not this world. This world is the one where we actually spend time with each other. And we have to live in real houses and we have to ride real cars and we have to build real bridges and we have to live in, you know, work in real offices. Um, that, that, that world is not real. And I think we need to start realizing that and start teaching students that that's not, not real. <laughs> it's never going to be real. Um, Mark, to, to that end, I just wanted to return to a point you made about the importance of, of memory. Um, in all of this um, memory, when you're, you know, whether when you're reading, I'm presuming that's a key part of all the all of these um, messages you're giving us. So, you know, presumably there is some benefit for some of these traditional learning modes that have been around for a long time, where where students have to get, you know, they get a packet of information that they're being asked to learn and remember, and I guess. Um, regurgitate in a test to some extent um, mm. that is actually you know that is um, testing that muscle that that memory muscle that that you're saying is is actually a good thing right yeah and we talk I mean everybody's talking about creativity and innovation and how we've got to teach kids how to be innovative and creative 
And we know how to be innovative and creative and how you do that. You actually do it when you're asleep at night. And if you talk to, you know, or read any of the biographies of any of the great scientists or any of the great um, discoveries, they, they all came up with them when they're actually sleeping because that's when we actually come up with innovative ideas. And you come up with them based on the information that you have in your long-term memory. So to actually be innovative and creative, what you've got to do first is you've got to get the knowledge and you've got to put it into your long-term memory. And then at night time, you know, you go through these five different stages of sleep. And the last one of those, you actually go in fast forward, you go through thousands of different scenarios of different things that could have happened to you that day or different things that could have you, you could have come up with in relation to things that you were thinking about that day. And they're all built on all the stuff that's in your long-term memory. And that's where Einstein came up with his theory of relativity. Um, Edison used to have a couch in his office. So when he didn't have any good ideas, he used to sit down in his couch and he had a whole bunch of ball bearings that he put in his hand and he had a big saucepan and he put that down beside his couch and he'd sit there and just go to sleep. And when he got into REM sleep, his muscles would relax. So he'd drop the ball bearings, they'd fall into the saucepan and they'd wake him up. And then he'd write down all the ideas he'd just come up with while he was asleep. Um, and that's that's how you're innovative and creative. You're not innovative and creative without that first, that knowledge first. You know, you can't write a beautiful symphony unless you know what a violin sounds like and you know what an oboe sounds like and you know what the orchestra sounds like together and how to actually write music. You need all that basic knowledge in your long-term memory first, and then you can come up with innovative and creative ideas. The idea that they just come out of the blue, you know, light bulb moments is complete nonsense. It comes from this really, really uh, um, strong and um, um, huge knowledge base that you have in your long-term memory. So you need to get that information into the students first before they're ever going to be innovative and creative. You play guitar, don't you? I do, yes. Yeah, you're a bit of a rocker. So was it Les Paul or something you had? What do you have? SG? I can't, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Pitch. I had a Les Paul. Les yeah, Paul, yeah. yeah. Um, do you That's reckon gone. you would have ever, you know, sitting sitting there bored as a teenager learning guitar and in, in if you were maybe confronted with a Instagram feed instead, do you, how do you think you'd go on guitar these days? Yeah, I probably would have never learned guitar. Um, I probably would have been on Facebook or whatever it was, um, and never ended up playing guitar. Which I do worry been. about that. I, I wonder with, and I want to talk about boredom and the the elimination of boredom because there really is never a point now in I won't say this world, but I'll say mm-hmm. the world that you it's don't like. <laughs> yeah. um, there, there is very little time for boredom due to that, and I, I sometimes do little thought experiments myself to see what are what are the outcomes of this, and I, I'd say there's far less people playing an instrument because if you were bored you'd, you'd sit down and play an instrument or you'd, you'd do any any number of other activities rather than um, looking at social media. Yes, and there's far less um, interaction between people too these days, which is really, really sad. And right? in it's the cool. environment as well, interaction with the environment, interaction with people. Yeah, I mean I didn't have an ideal childhood, but I do have fond memories of the fact that, you know, I used to get home from school, if I went to school, um, and drop the bag and we'd go and find something to do. Sometimes it was a pretty silly thing to do, but we'd play cricket, we'd, you know, play football, we'd go fishing, 
we do stuff together and everyone would meet up with each other. You sometimes have arguments, you sometimes have fights, you sometimes, you know, do things that you shouldn't have been doing. But we, we have interactions, whereas kids today, yes, they're not, they're, you know, teenage pregnancy has gone way down, drug taking has gone way down, which is all fantastic things. But kids today are sitting in their rooms and they're getting depressed and suicides through the roof, mental health issues are through the roof. We don't, you know, we have real issues with resilience. We have real issues um, with students actually having the ability to be empathic with each other, to understand how each other's feeling. Um, you know, cyberbullying's gone through the roof. I mean, all these things are really detrimental to, to these students and their ability to learn, their ability to come to school and actually sit down and concentrate. Um, and, and I think that's really sad. And we know that the, the, the jobs in the future, all the analytics, um, analytics companies are saying that the jobs in the future aren't going to be in tech, right? The jobs in tech are actually all going to India and to China. So if you want a job in tech, you're going to have to move to one of those countries. And the, the big growth industries in Australia and the US and UK are in health. And the things you need to be good in health, a doctor, a, a nurse, an OT, a psychologist, whatever, is, is you need to have empathy, right? You need to be able to communicate well. You need to be a leader. You need to have really good people skills. Um, and those things, students aren't learning and you don't learn those on a device. You can't learn those on a device because you're not reading emotions. You're not reading body language. You're not understanding empathy. We, we know that um, if a child has, if their carer has a smartphone and uses it regularly, they have significantly poorer facial expression ability. So they don't understand facial expressions because their care is constantly on a mobile phone. And there's what, four or five big groups in the US who are now studying that and what impact that's going to have on these toddlers when they get older because they're not going to be able to be empathetic. They're not going to be able to understand each other. And we, we as a connected species, I mean, we got to this, what we are now, because we collaborate with each other, because we actually work with each other, because we're connected and we're social. Um, but we're losing that now because of these devices. And that's going to have a really significant impact on us in the future and our ability to come up with innovative and creative ideas of getting out of some of the holes that we're digging ourselves into at the moment. So, I mean, so Sorry, that's pretty depressing, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, well, uh, now, now if I can press you a bit, because we pressed our last guest, Matt, it was Maggie Dent, and um, we pressed her on a few a few uh, things regarding technology and smartphones and what kind of rules, you know, around par parenthood should be there. But if I, if I was to press you as a neuroscientist, short on, you know, uh, turning notifications off and all the little tweaks you can do to your smartphone to minimise the impact, what about, um, what kind of hard and fast rules would you suggest um, a family should have for, you know, for, as far as the age of their kids in terms of getting a smartphone and how long you reckon they, they sh it's, I know it's a tricky question to answer, but just give us the top few. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, my son is 12. He doesn't have a smartphone. He has an hour on the weekends that he's allowed to use the iPad to do whatever he wants on the iPad. And that's it. Um, my daughter is a teenager she now goes to school, which is a little way away, and she also goes does a lot of things after school. So we got her a, a smartphone for the bus ride into school um, and then the bus ride when she's doing extracurricular stuff after school. Um, when she gets home, she plugs it in in 
we all plug our phones in the same spot, in the general spot in the house, and we turn them down so that you can't hear them. They all go on to hibernate um, at 9 o'clock at night, and then they don't turn back on until 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, so they're all turned off for all of us because um, I think you've got to, it's got to be a whole thing. You can't you can't tell your teenager they're not allowed to look at their phone if you're looking at your phone. I mean, that's just nuts, right? Um, we've got to lead by example. Um, we don't have phones at the table, dinner table. Um, we always have dinner together and we don't ever have phones at the dinner table because we talk and we should be talking to our kids when we're at dinner. Um, so, yeah, those those are my rules. My, my daughter also gets an hour on the weekend when she's allowed to be on a device and do whatever she wants to. Unfortunately, in her school, um, they, they do do some stuff on devices. Um, and so she does occasionally have homework to do, but she has to do that on the dining room table so that we can see what's actually going on there. Um, because there are predators on the internet who are preying on kids and teenagers. TikTok, I mean, you can pay. There's, there's, there's pedophiles on TikTok who pay teenagers so to, to lift their skirt and to do all these awful things on TikTok and they give them money to do that. And most parents don't realise this. This is TikTok. This isn't some, you know, underground um, app or something like that. So, you know, we need to be really careful and we need to protect our children um, regardless of their age and we need to teach them how to control their, their screen use and their, their device use so that when they get to the point where they leave home, and they're surrounded by it all the time. They can turn it off. They can control their own time and and, and all the rest of it. Can we, we need break to down that. more than just the time, though, because I feel like just time restrictions don't take into account all the things that we should be considering. And um, something that I kind of think about quite a lot is context shifting and this these constant pop-ups and notifications and all these things that distract you from being able to just concentrate on the work that you're doing or the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, Firstly, absolutely. can you yeah. explain your thoughts on the ability of the human brain to multitask and yeah. whether whether there is actually multitasking or if we're actually just switching between things in a distracted way continually and what your thoughts are on context shifting and how even even when a child is doing their homework, they've still got notifications coming from teams and emails from teachers and all these other things that, yeah. yes, they're on their phone, they're doing homework, but how effective is it all? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, no, we can't multitask. Our brains are incapable of multitasking, and all the research, all the research by quality researchers shows that you can't multitask. But I've we, seen we, some Facebook memes that say the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> you will. <laughs> There's lots of people out there who have opinions these days, um, and opinions aren't facts. Opinions are just opinions. Um, so we. Uh, you're conscious what you're aware of and what you're actually able to manipulate in your brain is is your working memory and we know we've known for a long time your working memory is limited to only well it used to be limited to seven slots we now think it's actually dropped down to about four or five slots because of the fact that we use devices all the time and we're switching all the time but it used to be seven slots i'm gonna i hope mine's still got seven it's slots still got so, seven. yeah so it's, it's seven slots and that's why our phone numbers used to be six numbers, right? Because you actually had to hold those numbers in your head because it wasn't in your phone. 
you have to hold those in, and then you needed an extra one to actually do the dialing because you need some of those slots to actually manipulate it or to think or to do those things. So you've had got about three or four that you can hold information in two or three that you can actually then use it to manipulate the information. So with that, with that restriction, there's no way you can actually do two things which are cognitively demanding at the same time. So what you do is you switch and each time you switch, each time your attention is caught because your attention is what controls that working memory, what decides is getting into that working memory. Because, of course, we don't remember anything during the day. We remember when we're sleeping at night. It's just put into a temporary store. If it's in your working memory long enough, it'll be put into a temporary store, and then at night it'll actually be saved in your long-term memory. So for that to happen, it's got to be in there for long enough, and every time you get a disruption, every time you attend to something else, every time you get a buzz in your leg because of your smartphone, you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing, and however long it takes you to go back to that task, yeah? But it's definitely 90, probably more, because you probably go to it and then you come back, and that's going to cause a problem. A bit scary. So, is it the so, same with yeah. – I don't know if you can stay on the same topic or not, but there's something I want to check. Listening to music, because yes. that's not a that's not a buzz, or, but some people will listen to music when they're working. Um, I know, like I'm, I'm doing some renos at the moment. I might listen to music while I'm working. Try to listen yeah. to a podcast while I'm trying to figure things out, and not a chance. I have to, t- I, I just pull them off my head. So, what, what about music? Yeah, if you're trying to remember something or to, to actually do some cognitive work rather than just manual labour, but actual cognitive work, if you listen to music which doesn't have lyrics, it can actually improve your memory, it can actually improve productivity. If it's got lyrics, then the words are actually going to distract you. Is that the same pathways as when looking at thing, looking at a page and reading things in a visual-spatial awareness? As um, So listening to music kind of associates things that you're doing with, with a sound as well? Am I on the right track? So if you're just listening to music, it can actually, if you're listening to music without, without words in it, without lyrics then you can actually use that, which which I, I do a lot of stuff with teachers on how you can use it and you can use other um, sensory inducements to actually improve memory because you can link that, you can link a particular music piece to something you're actually trying to learn and then when you're actually trying to remember that bit that you learn, if you think of the music, then you'll actually remember the stuff that you're learning. So you can actually do that to actually help with your memory formation. You've just got to make sure you use different music for the different things that you're actually trying to remember. But the music, if you're listening to like Mozart or whatever, it just basically relaxes you and gets you more into the zone or into the flow. And so it's it's better for cognitive thinking and especially deep, deep thinking um, if it doesn't have lyrics. But if it has lyrics, then it's just going to capture your attention. So it's, it's just like, because from an evolutionary point of view, you've got to remember our attention... We, we have our ability to attend our endogenous attention, which is our ability to actually control our attention. So right now I'm controlling my attention and looking at you guys and trying to think about what I'm doing and, and ignoring anything that happens out there. But then we have things that happen out there, which from an evolutionary point of view were really important for us to attend to. Mm-hmm. So there's four things that capture our attention, which devices use really, really effectively. They are faces, which is was my discovery. I discovered that about 25 years ago. They had to rewrite all the textbooks because of it. So faces capture our attention and they're, they're processed implicitly. And you can't help yourself from actually attending to faces. Colour attracts our attention. So especially reds, oranges and yellows, which is why um, stop signs and everything are reds, oranges and yellows. Um, 
movement captures our attention and sound captures our attention. Of course, you want movement because if something, if there's a, if there's a, uh, a rock flying at your head, you want to see it, so you move out of the way, and sound so that you'll hear things that are coming up behind you. And so those things you can't stop. Those things track our attention regardless of what's actually going on or how much we're attending. And, of course, the sound and the movement and, and the colours are used by all the devices to capture our attention, and we can't, we can't stop that unless we turn them off. Sorry, Sam's phone is just buzzing in his pocket. Can you repeat the last 90 seconds? <laughs> exactly. So, so that um, that's a nice, actually, nice segue onto the role of movement in learning. Uh, I've got a few questions here. I'm sure you've got oh, a few yeah, as well, actually. Stuff, yeah. uh, and, I, I, I mean, from my understanding, my very limited understanding, there's a lot more research coming out about the importance of movement and, and the links with movement and learning. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, movement's awesome because it does. It, it almost resets our, um, our cognitive capacity. So you do get drained. So when you're when you're either trying to attend to one thing at a time, so you're just trying to focus on one thing, and you're in a classroom, and there's lots of people around, and you're trying to ignore all of that, concentrate on one thing. That takes up a lot of energy and takes up a lot of um, capacity. And so movement will reset that. So by, by giving the student the opportunity to stand up and move, we'll actually reset that and help them to focus more. Plus, because movement um, is automatic, it's a very, very old ability from millions of years ago, right? And so therefore, it's an old ability that we don't actually need conscious. Uh, our working memory is not necessary for the movement. The movement just happens without us actually having to use up any of those slots to actually do it. So you can continue to think. So I always, I teach teachers how to use Pomodoro technique. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Pomodoro techniques, but it's been studied for a long time. And it's called Pomodoro because it's it's based on a um, Italian, uh, Italian timer, which is shaped like a tomato. Um, and the original studies were all done with these tomato timers. But the idea is with an adult, the most productive way to do your work is to set a timer for 25 minutes and do, do one thing, have everything else turned off and just focus on one thing for 25 minutes. And, and that is actually training your attention to actually be able to control it and just think about one thing. After the 25 minutes, you get up for five minutes and move. You do squats or sit-ups or push-ups or whatever you want to do, stretch. And then you come back and you do another 25 minutes and you do that four times, which is two hours, and then you have a longer break, which is 25 minutes. And during that longer break, you can do other things. And I, I will usually during the day have those four sessions. And then during that 25 minutes, I will check my email and do other things. Yeah, I'll turn on my email so that I can do it. And then I'll turn off my email again. Um, and so that's the best way to actually set out your time. With students, of course, you would set it for shorter periods of time, dependent on the age and the capacity of the students. But even with kids with um, ADHD, I've worked with a lot with um uh, teachers who have students who have ADHD who or 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 on the spectrum, um, and we've gone from only being able to do a minute at a time up to doing twenty minutes at a time with those Pomodoro technique by just slowly exercising their endogenous attention so that they can actually expand the amount of time that they can actually just attend to one task and one task only. And these kids, you know, a lot of them were truants. One of them in particular was a truant and hated school, and now she gets upset on a Saturday when she's not allowed to go to school because she enjoys school so much because she's actually achieving good grades at school and she's actually doing so. So, you know, it is a really good way to actually um, work 
you, your attention mechanisms. And we know, as, as we were talking about before, our brains are plastic and you can change them. So anything you're unable to do today, you can do in the future as long as you slowly train it to do whatever it is you want to do. And speaking of movement and plasticity, uh, I've been looking into this a little bit and I, I, I won't be able to exactly say what I mean here, but I think novel movements put your brain in a state. So when I say novel movements, I mean doing things that are maybe slightly complicated coordination patterns or something along those lines, more than just straight-up squat um, mm. to just shake it off, but something that actually puts your brain in a mode, okay, I'm ready to learn now I'm, and my brain is ready to, to plasticize. Have you looked into that at all? Yeah, so there is some work showing that, that I mean, things like um, yoga and all these sorts of things where you are putting yourself into some strange poses or trying to get into... And I dance and things like yoga. that as well. Dance as well, yeah. I, I think I, there's been some studies in uh, for Alzheimer's and dance in older people and the, how big a difference that's made in, in their cognitive ability. Yeah, you might have seen there, there was a Catalyst program that I was on a couple of years ago where they actually did that. We did it with Parkinson's and with um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and they, we, you know, we, you, with that, you've actually got to play music from their past. And if you play music that they're actually new in the past but they don't remember anymore, they'll actually get up and dance to it. And they'll, they'll you know, individuals with Parkinson's these disease who have the stop start, it goes away completely because it's a different part of your brain that you're actually using when you do that. Um, people with Alzheimer's disease who normally wouldn't have access to those memories all of a sudden have access to those memories and will actually start remembering other things as well, which is really, really cool. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, dance does, I mean, movement, dance, all those things, because you're activating other parts of your brain, you know, because you've got motor cortex, motor-sensory cortex down here, but when you're talking about what we do, a lot of what we do at school is using the um, anterior temporal um, areas and the prefrontal cortex and stuff. So it's different areas of your brain that you all of a sudden start activating when you're doing different movements and so on, um, which takes the blood and everything else away from those areas that you were using. So therefore you get a reset, if you like, in their ability to do it. Um, but there are a lot of yeah studies now. I mean, even the studies with um, cold therapy and stuff, which is really interesting and whether, you know, getting in a cold bath can help with those those sorts of things. There's also some interesting research that's going on at the moment. There's a much bigger link than we ever thought between our brain and our body. And I mean, it's stupid that we actually talk about it as a brain and body because it's all really the one thing. Um, but we now know that there's a huge link between those two things. I remember uh, about five years ago, I was asked to do a symposium at a psychiatrist conference, which I was surprised I was invited to. Um, but I went to a psychiatrist con conference. I turned up early because I was interested in what was going on. And they had a whole session on the gut and the gut flora, flora and what people were eating. And they were changing people, you know, they were, they were curing people of depression through what they were eating and changing their eating habits. So, yeah, movement, food, you know, cold and hot water, going surfing, all these things I think are awesome for the brain because the brain does all that and is involved in all of that. It's involved in it. It's, it's who we are. Mm. Um, so I actually really wanted to ask you, uh, I wanted to come back to ADHD um, and you mentioned you'd worked with um, students with ADHD, and I'm very curious about the link here with technology and ADHD, and you mentioned you use this technique to, to help with 
attention deficit. What is what is the link there though with because it's obviously pretty controversial stuff with mm. the link between technology. Um, you know, I'm assuming it's not the technology necessarily that's causing ADHD, but if you have a predisposition or you, you may have a ADHD or, or, or it has a capacity to bring on ADHD-like attentional issues. Um, can you clarify all of that for us? Because I'm, I'm still confused. Yeah, I mean, ADHD, um, it's, it's a difficult uh, disorder because it's there, there isn't, there's no genetic component. So you can't test someone, you can't give someone a blood test and go, yes, they've got ADHD or no, they don't have ADHD. It's all based on behaviour. So to be diagnosed as ADHD, it's, it's a behavioural diagnosis based on the clinician viewing the individual and the parents and teachers and all the rest of it. And so it's a whole bunch of reports and then they decide whether or not, based on the behaviour, whether or not the individual has ADHD. So the, we know the devices, because they're affecting your ability to attend and therefore your ability to actually maintain attention, it, it, that what you see is very similar to ADHD. So whether or not a child has re, you know, what you might want to call real ADHD or whether or not they have ADHD-like symptoms because of the devices, we, we can't tell because there's no way of giving a blood test to actually know whether or not it's ADHD or it's ADHD-like symptoms. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, yep. So because there is no diagnosis except for the behaviour. So for that reason, look, sorry, for that reason, do we yeah. know if these numbers are increasing or not or is it it's too hard to diagnose and in the past it was probably even harder to diagnose? Do we have any... So the, the, there is an increase in those symptoms in, in, in our society. So we know there's more people in our society now that have symptoms that look like ADHD and therefore would be diagnosed as ADHD. Whether or not there's a subset of those that would have had ADHD where the devices were around or not, which would have stayed static because it would have been some sort of genetic component that would have actually caused that, and then there's more that are actually got because of the devices, we don't know. And or there, whether and, or not... Mm, and there is a question there, isn't there, over whether if someone didn't have the genetic component but they're showing ADHD-like behaviour that may be linked to the technology, whether that is is sort of, I guess, corrective or more easily corrective than if, than someone who has ADHD uh, more, you know, at a genetic level and they've been perhaps struggling with that all their life. Is that right? Yes. Yes, yeah, that is correct. But we don't know whether or not that's true because we can't separate which ones are the true, whatever you want to call it, ADHD versus those that have got behavioural issues because of the devices. So there's no way of separating those two. So there's no way of knowing whether or not any of these things are true. What we do know is that the younger you're given a device or the more time you spend on a device, the more likely you are to have ADHD like symptoms and therefore be diagnosed as ADHD. Are there any other, so what other and things would could potentially be the cause of ADHD, do you know? Well, there could be there, there could be a genetic component that we don't know about yet <laughs> because this genetics isn't really as if that advanced yet. It's only a fairly new area and there's so many genes and it could be a combination of genes. 
Um, it could be a, a, a catalyst that's causing it, um, but but all of the evidence suggests that there is this group that it's been caused by the devices. There's no other correlation that we can find um, that, that has occurred in the last 10 years that could have caused this issue. That's scary. It is a bit scary. Um, all right, so now I wouldn't mind um, coming back to the classroom because we've got a whole bunch of uh, teachers, hopefully, that will be listening to this. Um, and as far as your you know, top sort of, I guess, classroom interventions or the environment you think we need to foster that's most conducive for learning based on the neuroscience, is, is there a bit of a sort of top five in your book that, that you've got that, that you would recommend? Uh, top five. <laughs> um, look, num- number one for teachers, I think, to realise is is connection is is the most important aspect of teaching. So we, we as a connected species, um, we've we've evolved this um, in group out group mentality. So we we associate with our in group and we don't associate with our out group, and so. We actually hear what people say if they're members of our in-group differently to the, what we hear if they're the out-group. We find people who are in our in-group more attractive than people in our out-group. We are willing to learn from people from our in-group really, really easily. And we actually learn really, really rapidly from people who are in our in-group. And we don't learn from people who are in our out-group. So number one is you as a teacher have to create an in-group within your classroom where everybody, all the students, feel as though they're part of your group. And if any students don't feel as though they're part of your group, they're not going to learn because A, they'll hear the negative things you say, but they won't hear the positive things you say. They'll actually reinterpret anything you say and they, they won't actually learn from you because we've got, in in our, our brains have actually been, have evolved not to learn from people in our app group because that's actually really dangerous because we learn really easily. We're actually extremely good at learning and we're really good at remembering things, but only if we're taught by someone who's in our in-group and not if someone's in our out-group. So you've really got to get someone in your in-group. And I'm sure you guys know, you know, the students are in Culture, creation, or, you know, there's lots of different terms for it. But, yeah, it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same thing. But it comes down to that, the evolution of our brain and the fact that most of our brain is actually dedicated to socialising and most of our brain actually is there just to recognise who's in the in-group and who's in our out-group and therefore who's okay to learn from and who's not. Yeah, um, and I, th- and so- I think it's really interesting too at certain times in kids' um, schooling lives, they might not um, be developing academically as consistently as they, they might have in the past, but often they're going through a whole lot of really important social learning um, that they're sort of spending expending a lot of mental energy on i guess um all that important stuff yeah there's i mean there's the great everyone talks about the great three kids and then i mean the year three kids and the year nine kids right because those seem to be two points at which they really go through a lot of that social angst and anxiety about pecking orders and how to interact with people and empathy and all those sorts of things and you seem to have this you know a a bit of a, a trough during that year three and then a bit of a trough during the year nine, year 10 period where they really struggle with that because there's a lot of other stuff going on in their lives as well. Um, I think also we, we need to be more um, 
aware um, of peer groups. So there's a great book by um, Matei called um, Hold On To Your Kids. I don't think I've got it here. But he talks a lot. He's a very, a very famous psychologist, but he talks a lot about peer groups and the fact that in the last 50 to 70 years, we've become more and more peer-oriented than we ever have before and that students are extremely peer-oriented, which means that they're not going to listen to the older people, they're not going to listen to teachers because they're not part of their peer group because they're being told and they're being trained to actually believe that the peer group is the most important thing. But, of course, then they're actually learning from their peer group and their peer group actually doesn't have any more knowledge than they have and so what they're learning isn't actually positive or, or rewarding for them. So... We need to also, I think, think more about the way we set up schools around peer groups um, and think about maybe not having such an emphasis on year one, year two, year three, year four, but having cross year so that students actually see that the older kids are actually part of their, you know, part of their group as well, part of the whole thing. Um, and also then you can get the teachers involved as well so that it's across the whole gamut rather than being in year groups, you know, because there's year groups and then the sport groups and all these things are all based on these peer groups, which means that they intrinsically or implicitly associate with your peer group and don't listen to other people. And that's only really happened in the last 50 years or so. There's yeah. a bit of a movement for those rites of passage type things as well, it's, and mentors, and um, so I guess that's that's taking that into account a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, they, there was a study done, what, about 15 years ago where they asked teenagers how many people outside of their their family nucleus do they have that they could call on if they had a crisis, if something went wrong. And back 10, I think, 15, probably about 15 years ago now, um, the average was seven significant others outside of their core thing. And then they did it about two years ago and the, the average was zero people outside of their family that they could actually call on. And that, again, I think it comes back down to that, is that we don't have friends across peer groups. And, of course, your peer group isn't really that mature, especially when you're in, you know, year nine or year eight or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so you probably wouldn't call on them to actually help out if there was a crisis. You need older people in your peer group, or in, in, not in your peer group, but in your group, that you can call on outside of your family that, that um, are there in case something goes wrong. Um, yeah, we, at Scotch, that. where we both teach, it's there's a really big emphasis on service and um, and, and mentorship and vertical, vertical integration, you know, any opportunity to get younger boys with older boys learning from them. Awesome. I think we're increasingly trying to do that more and more and um, because, you, you know, you just see it. You just see the power, how powerful that, learning is when that happens so but it's good to know that the the neuroscience is uh well supports that that yeah, idea yeah because it's not enough of that which is a shame yeah 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 i mean the five so then then there's um so the five key to learning as, as i see them and what i teach um and based on all the neurosciences out there, is connection, which we were just talking about. And we've got to get connection first before we can get anything else. Then there's attention. And so setting up your classroom so that they're not being distracted by things. I go into so many classrooms where teachers will have things hanging up uh, you know, across the thing. And, of course, every time a door opens or a child moves, they, they sway and movement attracts your attention. 
So they've been captured constantly and they're losing 90 seconds of their learning every time that happens, you know, and having lots of faces up on the, up on the, on the walls in front of them. Again, those faces are capturing their attention. And again, you're losing all that learning time when those things happen and lots of colors and everything up in front of them. It's fine to have those things, but have them behind them so that when they're actually trying to concentrate or they're trying to look at you and actually learn, they're not being distracted by those things. So they actually, their working memory can just be focused on you. But yeah, attention and controlling their attention. Um, then there's error feedback is number three, um, which is really important. But having error feedback where the students actually don't feel bad about it. So one thing that I like teaching is things like um, heads down, thumbs up. So where you get all the students to put their heads down and um, you know the left finger is yes and the right finger is no. And then you ask questions and they put their yes or they put no up, but they don't see what everybody else is saying. And then you tell them the answer straight afterwards. And so you can see who's actually getting it right and who's getting it wrong, but they don't see who's getting it right or who's getting it wrong, but they know what the right answer is, so they're learning from it. The, the worst thing I see is when one of the old ways of doing things is to actually be at the front of the class and actually ask a question and have people put their hands up because, of course, the kids that put up their hands are the kids that know the answer and you don't learn anything if you're right, right? You already knew it. So kid who answers it is somebody who knew the answer, so they're not learning anything. And the kids who didn't know the answer won't feel as though they're part of that in-group because they don't like those kids who actually got it right because they're not getting it right. So they won't listen. So they're not learning anything anyway. So no one's actually learning anything in the class when you do that. Whereas if you do it in a way where the students actually don't know who's getting right or wrong, then the students actually have the opportunity to learn from the feedback. Um, number four, of course, is consolidation. And that's consolidation across as well as within. So getting the students to actually think about what you're teaching them relates to other stuff that they already know. So we... <clears throat> Our brains don't remember information because we want to remember what happened in the past. It's the old way of thinking about memory. We actually now know that our memory is actually only there so that we can act in the future. So our memory, our brains will only store memories and information that it thinks we'll actually use in the future. So you want to link the stuff to stuff they already know, information they know, and so that it'll actually stay there because it'll be linked to that other information. Um, and then the final one, of course, is engagement. But personally, I think most schools focus too much on engagement and not enough on the other four aspects of, of learning. So those are the quick ones. Those That's are awesome. Yeah. I'm presuming in all of that, I know we've got to let you go in a minute, Mark. Um, and so thank you for, for sticking around a bit longer um, right, than I'm we anticipated. I've had dinner, so I'm good. Oh, good, good. Um, Steve yeah. hasn't. And he gets he gets pretty hangry. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. I got a son. I know what it's like. <laughs> um, presuming in all of that mix, um, it's. I mean, it's. It's my thinking that amidst all of that, they need a fair bit more solitude too, right? Like they need they need time for all these things to happen. Like the consolidation of learning you're talking about. I'm presuming there's got to be a lot more quiet time built into today's for all that to take place all this stuff for the attention to be focused for them not to be context shifting too often or what do you you know in terms of just making the day a little quieter in general what are you what's your thought thoughts on that yeah look i often get asked if you know if you're a principal what what would you do 
in the school differently. One, I would just, I would go through the curriculum and cut out 50% of it um, so that they could actually just focus on a few things, that, the important things that they actually need to learn and not all the extra stuff, which a lot of it isn't, I mean, we talk about evidence-based, but most of it isn't real evidence. It's just, yeah, it's nonsense. And what we should be talking about is real evidence-based rather than this evidence-based that we talk about at the moment. Um, but one, one thing that does have a huge impact on um, outcomes in schools is just to have 30 minutes at the start of the day in all classes where everybody across the whole school, even the administration staff, read for 30 minutes, do nothing else but read. So they all just sit down and they read. The teachers have to read something, not do work, not mark, not do anything else, but read to show the students that reading is really important. All the administration staff, the principal, everybody, headmaster, whatever it happens to be, has to sit down and read during that the first 30 minutes of class because that really resets you. I mean, we don't know what's happened to kids before they arrive at the school. I work a lot, a lot in low SES areas, so schools where, you know, these kids are having pretty rough lives and you really want to give them a chance to reset when they get to school and realise this is about learning, so here's my quiet time where I, when I can just read. And you let them read whatever they want to read. If they want to read a surfing magazine, then they read a surfing magazine. If they want to read a, you know, a Shakespeare novel, they can read a Shakespeare novel. If they, Whatever it happens to be that they're into, they read that. And what happens is, you know, at lunchtime and at recess, kids that were never interested in reading all of a sudden talk, start talking to some of the other kids about what they're reading and you want to borrow this or have you read this or so on and so forth. So there's a whole conformity across the school about the reading and what they're actually reading and they'll actually talk to each other. But also you get that quiet time, you get that 30 minutes at the start of the day where they're actually just reading, doing nothing else. They're attending to one thing and then everything's quiet. And I think that's really, really important. Um, I would also put in more periods of time where there is quiet time, where kids are just asked to reflect um, and do that quite regularly and have that, again, for the whole school. So the whole school spends 10 minutes three times a day where it just stops and everyone stops. You have some sort of bell, a different sound, where everyone's just told you've got to stop and you've got to just sit and reflect. You can meditate, you can concentrate, you can breathe, you can think about, you know, going surfing tonight, whatever it is, but it's everyone's quiet and everyone's just reflecting. And I think that's also something which I think would help with kids' ability to, A, the, the, their mental health, their ability to just calm down and, and relate to everybody else, um, but also their ability to attend better when they're actually trying to learn. Because I, I think, yeah, we, we, we pack the curriculum with too much stuff, um, we don't spend enough time letting them just consolidate their learning, which I think is really and as, important. And as you said, it's really hard to commit too much more stuff to memory than, I guess, small chunks of things because we've only got these limited channels in our working memory. So, Yeah, and they're getting really, really tired all the time, especially if you're on devices and so on because they're constantly switching, um, which is causing those things to be drained. And so we need time for them to actually reset. But as, uh, I think... Um, yeah, you should, I can't remember who said it. One of you said it earlier. You know, we need downtime um, to be imaginative and be creative, right? We need time to actually just think. Boredom is what, what sets off creativity. When you're bored is when you actually come up with great ideas, when you actually think of doing things that are actually worthwhile, like, you know, I don't know, playing cricket with a, with a soccer ball or something crazy. I don't know. 
but you know, boredom is really, really important for us and really important for our brains because that's when we come up with new ideas and creativity and all these things. Because the stuff we, we come up with creativity and innovation at night, but it only boils up into our brain so that we can actually realize what's going on when we're bored, when we're waiting for it to actually come. Yeah, those moments are few and far between these days. Mm, it is very sadly um, carve out that yeah, space. That's why I love surfing because at least you know you have time in between waves to sit out the back. I have more time these days than I used to. Maybe, um, maybe we should suggest that. everyone at Scotch goes surfing for thirty minutes just at like one point at the yeah. start of the day. I'll be down for that every morning. <laughs> Keep you working out. here for a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Mark, we we better let you go. I'm just. Well, We've got a couple of quick fire questions that we always like to finish with, but before I get on to onto them, thank you so much for joining us today. And we know you've you've had a really wide and varied career, which we didn't get into enough, uh, which I wanted to kind of revisit. Um, you know, all the work you've done over your career, and and just and sounds like you've had a pretty pretty interesting life, um, full of ups and downs. So um, you know, a man of great range, and that all of our guests. All of our guests kind of have that that thread through their lives, you know. Um, so thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. No, look, I think we're very similar. Surfing, guitars, talking about <laughs> education. That's that's kind of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good life to have. All right. So, um, Mark, a couple of quick ones. Um, if you manage to get onto, you know, wing foil and, and uh, it just, you know, took you 100 k's, uh, out into the ocean, and you found yourself bumping into a deserted island. What would be the your favourite album? If you could only have one album on the on the island, what would it be? Oh, it'd have to be Rumours by Fleetwood Mac at the moment. I think I um yeah I vary a lot to be honest. It depends on how I'm feeling. Um, but yeah, I'm feeling a bit yeah. I just I just um, submitted my I've just written a book and I just submitted it to the publishers. So I've had a crazy couple of months um and and i'm getting right into rumors because it, it really relaxes me so i'd have to say that great today. album yeah great album I do change a lot. <laughs> okay um now i was going to say what book or books has most profoundly affected you uh or ones that you'd recommend most perhaps you could also include any kind of research or studies that have had the most profound effect on you or or a book or books that you've loved that you would recommend or perhaps all teachers or parents read <laughs> i could mention a few um I, I would have to say my book which is coming out next year called of course the of course brilliant what's that called sorry the connected species great fantastic uh, how the evolution of our brain can uh, change the world um so yeah that'd be number one um one that affected me a lot so as you said i i had quite a a rough childhood um my mother was had mental illness and was in and out of psychiatric wards and so i didn't like school at all um and i was a truant for most of the time and i didn't actually get my head to see until i was in 25 after which was really ironic because my principal when i was in year nine talking about year nine earlier and when i was in year nine told my father and myself that i'd be dead or in prison by the time i was 25 and it was actually when i was 25 that i actually decided to go back to tafe and get my hsc which is a little ironic i should have sent him a picture of me back at tafe um but after i when i went to tafe i had an amazing physics teacher 
And he actually told me to read a book um, written by John Cleese and um, Robin Skinner called Families and How to Survive Them. And I was a huge John Cleese fan back then. Um, and he, he wrote this because he was in therapy himself, John Cleese, because he had very similar background to myself with a lot of mental illness, but he had mental illness as well. Um, and so that really changed my outlook of who I could be and, and, and spurred me on. I mean, I ended up at MIT as a research fellow. So, um, yeah, that, that's something that really touched me. I actually haven't read, reread it since then, but I recommend it all the time. So I probably should reread it because it's probably not as good as I remember, but that changed my view. But I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I loved John Cleese and I loved all the comedies that he was in. Um, for teachers, I think there's a great book called Why We, Why We, no, How Our Brains Learn, How Our Brains Learn, yeah, How Our Brains Learn by um, Stanislas Dahane, um, who's a French neuroscientist. It's it's a fantastic book and it um, goes through a lot of the stuff I was just talking about um, as well as other stuff. Um, he only thinks, he, 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 he only thinks there's four keys to learning, whereas I, I really believe there's five and have good reasons for it based on more modern research. But but it is a really good book. The other one, of course, is I mentioned it before, um, Matei's book called Hold On To Your Kids, which is all about um, the change that we've had to um, kids being in their own cohorts and not, you know, across cohorts, which is causing issues and a lot of the research around why that is an issue. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that would be a couple of the main ones. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch on devices. I'm, I just read, um, is it Lost Connection um, by Harari, um, which was a good one. There's another good one um, on, um, yeah, no, there's there's multiple really good ones on, on devices, which I would I would say the Harari one's really good, which has just come out called Lost Connection. Did you read um, them on a device? <laughs> no, no, books, all books. Well, you can't see because I blurred my back, but there's a bookshelf back there. And I have multiple bookshelves inside. Um, yeah, no, definitely wouldn't read it on the device. Uh, look, if you, if you want to read on on uh, Kindles and so on, especially Kindles is fine as long as you don't want to remember it, right? If you're just doing it for for, for pleasure and it's just to put you to sleep, or you know, mm -hmm. then it's fine. And, and my um, wife does; she does. She's an attentional attention researcher um, and a professor as well. Um, and she often reads just you know fiction. Um, on a device. But when she's reading stuff for work, she reads it on paper so that she'll actually remember it. So it's fine to read on devices as long as you realise you're not going to remember the information as well. But yeah, sorry, those were the books. I, I could keep going with books, but I better stop there. Oh, that's <laughs> great. I'll get that Harari one. I wouldn't mind reading that. Mm. Yeah, no, it is. It's really good. He, and he's a great writer. He's, he keeps he keeps you enthralled. Very good writer, yeah. Is that the same Harari that wrote Sapiens and all those those ones, is it, or...? Or are we talking a different Harari? Well, I assumed it was. I'm thinking. Did he write Sapiens? No, that Yuval, was. Yuval Harari? Yeah, no, it's a different Harari. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, All right. So Last maybe one. I'll put that to, no, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Harari. Or is it Harari? Harari. Harari, Harari, Harari or Harari? Maybe it's Harari. It's, it's called Smart Devices. It's called um, Lost Connection. Lost Connection. Okay, yeah. Lost Connection. <laughs> okay, I think we'll. Mark, we better let you go. Um, thank you so much for your time on joining us on the Range Project. This will, um, yeah, this will go out to all of our school community and beyond. Really interesting stuff. So thank you. Thank you very much. All Thanks, Adam. Thank you, guys. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of The Range Project, proudly supported by Scotch Parents, Scotch Teaching and Learning and the Old Scotch Collegians Association. <laughs>